Well, our, our sermon text today is, is this 34th Psalm. It's become a little bit of a tradition that during the summers we spent some time in the Psalms, uh, looking at, at various Psalms. This week, Psalm 34. Next week, if you're interested in kind of preparing, it'll be Psalm 56. It's kind of a, a companion Psalm to this one. They go well together. So ne- next, next week, Psalm 56 will be what we look to. Uh, both of them deal with the same situation. Uh, we don't have it printed in our copy of the bulletin, but if you were looking at your Bible, you'd see the title of the psalm. It says it's a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. It's referring to a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament, First Samuel 21, verses 10 to 15. And, and what's helpful to know about that passage is a couple things. First of all, Abimelech is not a proper name, but rather a title. Uh, literally in Hebrew, Abimelech means my father, the king. And, and that's what it means. It simply just means king, like Pharaoh or Caesar. It was a title that was given to a, a Canaanite king. And so we see here in 1 Samuel 21 that the name of that king was actually Achish. And what what happened was David was on the run from Saul. You recall that that David had killed Goliath and the people had raised up and, and were celebrating him. And he was the anointed ruler of God's people. He had not yet been enthroned, but he was already known to be the one who was to be king. Saul was not too happy with any of this. Saul wanted to put an end to this because Saul was king. He didn't want any contenders to his throne. So he pursued David in an effort to kill David. As David fleed, he had to head off into the, the, out to the hills, into the far lands. And, and while there, he ends up kind of being captured. And, and the servants of the king, Achish, bring David to Achish, and they say, hey, we think this is that David guy. You know, the one who killed Goliath? The one who is to be the king over the land? David knows he's in trouble. He came up with kind of an interesting solution at that time. What the Bible tells us is that David pretended to be a madman. He started drooling and acting all weird and making weird movements. And, and Achish finally looks at him and says to his servants, do I not have enough madmen that you would trouble me with this guy? Get him out of here. And he sends David on his way. And out of that experience, David writes this psalm in Psalm 56 that we'll look at next week. We'll see that David's worship of the Lord is grounded in his personal experience of God's graciousness and his glory. And it comes, of course, from this time when he was in great need. And let's face it, we all have times of great need, don't we? Because we are a needy people. But in light of our neediness, We should worship the Lord, for the Lord takes care of our physical needs. 
The Lord takes care of our emotional needs. And the Lord takes care of our ultimate needs. First of all, our physical needs. We see, we see in verse 1, David writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. It's interesting, he says that, that at all times, continually, right? The idea is, is at every type of time, I will praise the Lord. He says it. my circumstances are not the driver here. My circumstances are not what will determine whether or not I will praise the Lord. Right? He, he doesn't wait and kind of look at how things are going and decide, well, I'm having a good day today. Things are going my way. I'm kind of in a good mood. Sure, I'll praise the Lord. But maybe on some other day when things aren't going quite as well, well, well forget about the Lord. That's not what he does. How often it's the case with us that it is, though, that we fail to heed these words of David or the words of Paul that we looked at just a few weeks ago. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We can do this. David could do this because he knew what we know that what Paul knew, and what he spoke of in Romans 8, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It might not seem that way at times, does it? It might not feel that way at times. It might not even be comprehensible to us at times that that could be the case. right? Sometimes it just, we find ourselves in a situation we're like, there is no way God could be using this for our good. Why would he possibly be doing this? But simply because that's what our understanding of it is does not mean that that's how it is. We must base our faith and our reality on what we know to be true about God, that he is a loving father who is about our good. He is sovereign over all things. And so even when something comes upon us that is painful and seems hurtful and seems terrible, we must know that he is at work even in and through that. I think back to when my son Jack was a young boy. He uh, really, really, really didn't like getting shots. And I remember this one time I took him in to, to get uh, some vaccinations, and he was young enough that that he was still a, a pretty young guy, and yet big enough to know what was going on, right? And big enough to know that he didn't like shots, and big enough to be a little bit of a problem about it because he was kind of wiggly and strong and didn't want to sit still, right? And and. And I can remember being there with him and, and kind of holding him there as he was going to get this shot and, and, and him just looking at me and, and the tears in his eyes. And, and I could imagine what he was thinking. Dad, how can you do this to me? You, you say you love me. You say you, 
you care about me. You say you are there to, to protect me and to nurture me and, and to be about my best interest. And, and here you are inflicting this pain upon me. How can you do this? Well, of course, he didn't understand the whole big picture, right? He didn't understand the, the larger picture of it all because his understanding didn't rise to the level of my understanding. As far as there is a difference between what his understanding was as a little child and mine as an adult, the difference in understanding between our understanding and God's understanding is infinitely greater, right? So just because we can't understand how God might be working in a way for our good does not mean that he is not. We must trust that he indeed is for our good. David did. It's not just talk because he had been through a difficult situation, right? He had been through some real trials here. He had Saul trying to kill him. In fact, 1 Samuel 18 tells us that Saul was David's enemy continually. It's interesting, I thought in my study this week as I was looking at this, that, that against the backdrop, right, that of, of Saul being David's enemy continually, we see here in verse 1 of Psalm 34, that David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. It's actually in Hebrew not the same word, but it is the same idea, isn't it? That, that at all times I'm going to, in an ongoing way, be praising God regardless of what's happening. Even though I have this great powerful enemy who is bent on my destruction, I will continue to praise the Lord. Even though things are hard, even though things are, are, are difficult, even though things are painful, even though things seem terrible for me and they're fearful, I will praise the Lord. David can do this because he knows, as he writes in Psalm 31, my times are in your hand. So he can confidently call upon the Lord, rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors, all the while praising God in the midst of his persecution. For the Lord takes care of our physical needs. We pray it every week, don't we? Give us this day our daily bread. Right? Because, because we have a poverty of ability to provide it for ourselves. We, we recognize that when we pray. And David was recognizing that in the midst of this psalm. Verse 6. The poor man cried... And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Right? He, he speaks of his own poverty here. Right? It, it's, it's in the very fact that he's praying, just in the, the fact of the prayer. Right? We, we pray because we need help. Beyond that, it's, it's in the mindset of his prayer. He says, this poor man, he refers to himself as being poor. He's unable to accomplish what needs to be. And it's in the nature of his prayer. This poor man cries. Sometimes our prayers arise to God passing through the falling of our tears. We'll look at that a little bit more next week specifically. But that's the reality. Sometimes, sometimes it is amidst our weeping that our most passionate tears arise to God. So it was for David. He realized his troubles were very real. He was on the run from Saul who wanted to kill him. Now there was this other threat from, from Achish. And, and he 
needed to find deliverance. Right? Why was it that they wanted to kill him? Well, well, Saul was after him simply because everybody thought so much of him. He was so great. Right? They, they were singing songs about him. Right? That's what it says when he came back from killing Goliath in 1 Samuel 18. They said that the, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And I'm sure he liked that when he saw them coming and singing. He thought, ha ha. And then we read, they sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands. And Saul puffed out his chest and felt good. And then echoed the refrain after it. And David, his tens of thousands. Wait a second. That's not how this is supposed to go. Right? The, the songs are supposed to be about me, Saul thinks. Not about David. Hey, it's something to have people sing about you. I think of Carly, was it Carly Simon that sang the song? Right? You're, you're so vain, you probably think this song's about you. Right? The, the song, which I've always thought was kind of ironic because if she's singing to the person that you think the song is probably about you, it actually is about them, but that's another topic for another day. Uh, I've never had anybody write songs and sing songs about me, but I did once. Once, when I was in high school playing basketball, I was not a big superstar, but once I had this glorious day where I scored 12 points in the fourth quarter coming off the bench. I was one of the last guys on the end of the bench, and I came off and scored 12 points, and the fans in the stands were literally chanting my name, Pete, 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 Pete. It was glorious. I mean, I, I, I was rather puffed up at that moment, I must admit it. David must have been puffed up. He must have thought it was pretty cool to have people singing about him. But we see here that he was willing to humble himself. Mighty David was willing to humble himself. He didn't need to keep up appearances. He was willing to humble himself and act as a fool, to be thought of as a fool, to be thought of as a madman. Even so, God was ultimately the one who delivered him. Just like he had with Goliath, when David had slain Goliath, right? He said that, that the Lord was with me when I would slay the animals that came against me as I tended to the sheep. And so he will be with me, and he will deliver me with this uncircumcised Philistine. And he was. It doesn't mean that, that David didn't do anything of himself. Of course, he took action. It doesn't mean that everything David did was right. Commentators argue over whether it was right for him to uh, pretend that way, to be dishonest, deceitful uh, for, for his goals. It, it's not the point. What, what we're looking at here is that David humbled himself. And God acted. The angel of the Lord, verse 7, tells us, encamps around those who fear him. And he delivers them. This, this fear of the Lord that is required, this, this reverential awe is spoken of in verses nine, or verse 9. It, it says, oh, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. In verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. 
I like what Derek Kidner said about this. It, it's not an empty promise of affluence that he is making here, but an assurance of God's responsible care. Right? He's not saying you'll get anything you want. Right? He's not saying God is just your magic genie. No, he's saying that God will care for you. He's a loving father who will provide for you. As Kevin DeYoung notes, we cannot be assured that God will come through in just the way we want him to. But we can be assured that he will always come through in just the way he ought to. And so it was in David's case. He made provision for the needs that he had the physical needs. David says, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. He worships the Lord. and he, he invites others to join in that worship with him. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Verse 3, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name for, uh, together. He, he calls others to praise on the Lord's name with him. Because it's good for them. It's for their benefit. And it's good for him as well. Because much like a delicious meal, worship is far better when it is enjoyed with others. And so he invites people to come into God's presence and to worship him because he provides for our needs. Not just our physical needs, but also our emotional needs, our inward needs. Too often we have a tendency to to think about the physical and neglect or ignore the, the emotional and, and, and internal needs we have. Right? We, we think that, well, I'm a Christian, so I should just be happy all the time. But nothing can be further from the truth, and the Bible's very plain about it throughout the Psalms. And, and even in this Psalm, we see, I sought the Lord, he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. But see, see, saying he had fears. David, this man after God's own heart, he had these fears, and these fears here we see are different than the, the fear. It's actually a different word than the fear that, that was in verse 7 or verse 9, that reverential awe. This, this kind of fear is more like terrors, right? My, my, my terrors, he delivered me from, from the object of dread and horror. would be a way to say it. Right? Oftentimes we have those kinds of fears, don't we? Those terrors, those, those horrors. And, and oftentimes our fears are actually worse than the things we're afraid of, aren't they? Have you ever had that? Going back to the story about, about Jack getting his shots, I remember the kind of funny thing about it. Finally, he calmed down and finally he, he kind of gathered his breath. And, and I remember him saying, saying, when he came to the point where he finally was going to trust me, huh? okay, Dad, they, they can give me the shot now. And I said, Jack, they already have. Right? They had already given it to him in the midst of this. He, he was so worked up and so worried. He didn't even notice when they actually did it, but the, but the fear was just so great. And sometimes that's how it is in life. Our fears are greater than the, the actual difficulty. So we need to turn those over to God because he's greater than the reality and the fear. He's greater than them both, right? He can handle them all. He delivers us from them. Another place where the psalm speaks to our inward and emotional needs is in verse 18. 
See what he said there? The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. What a beautiful, beautiful promise. What a, what a comforting promise from God. He is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Have you ever been brokenhearted? Have you ever been crushed in spirit? Maybe you are today. The Lord promises to be near to you. And he, he's not interested in drawing near to those who are filled with self-reliance and self-delusion. I can do it all. I've got this taken care of. I am able. No, he, he's there for those who are broken, those who are needy, those who realize their need. You see, God's favor is based more on what we need than on what we deserve. Look to him for comfort and wholeness. Verse 5 tells us those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. And so in verse 11, David writes, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What we have here, it sounds a lot like the book of Proverbs. Right? The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom, as we've said many times, is, is essentially skill in the art of godly living. And, and, and it, it's really a part of our worship, right? Our worship is not just something we do here on Sunday morning for one hour. It is, it is how we live all of life to the glory of God. And, and verses 12 through 14 give us a picture of what that might look like, right? And then keeping your tongue from evil and, and turning away from evil and, and, and pursuing peace, right? and, and as if you needed more motivation, verses 15 and 16 tell us that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And it's interesting, I thought, that, that in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 actually quote this passage. And the context, interestingly, in which it quotes them is this. Leading right up to it, verse 8 of 1 Peter 3. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. Right? The idea is that, that we're called to, to obtain a blessing, to receive a blessing, that we might be a blessing to others. Right? That, that we might not not respond to bitterness with bitterness, that we might not respond to anger with anger, that we might not respond to hatred with hatred, that we might not respond to reviling with reviling, that we might not respond to evil with evil, but rather might respond as Christ Jesus did, that we might respond with love, that we might respond with forgiveness, that we might respond with kindness, right? Remember Jesus on the cross. Peter's writing from the context of having actually known Jesus, right? He had seen Jesus for three years living his life this way. And then on the cross, what does Jesus say? But Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And even with Peter intimately himself knowing that he had denied Jesus three times and yet Jesus reinstates him and tells him, feed my sheep. Peter found his righteousness in Jesus. And as David writes, when the righteous cry for help, 
the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And there will be troubles. We will all have troubles. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, verse 19 tells us. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He will deliver us fully, completely, from our physical needs, our emotional needs, and from our deepest needs, our need for a Savior. Right? Here we see this entrance into the gospel promise of this psalm. There is but one who is truly righteous. He bore our afflictions that we might be delivered. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. The prophet Isaiah had written, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we have seemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. As Bob pointed out just a few moments ago, we see in verse 20 that this psalm is undeniably a, a messianic one, right? He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. And verse 22 tells us that through Jesus, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So I urge you, take refuge in him today. It's the only response that makes any sense. Take refuge in him. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not by work so that no one would boast, right? We, we have nothing to boast of in and of ourselves. And so as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, let, no one, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. That's what we see here from David. The poor man cried. The Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. It sounds an awful lot like the great words of John Newton that we've sung so many times, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It's only when we realize our sinful condition that we can realize the goodness of God's grace. It's only the, the depth to which we appreciate and understand our sin that we can truly appreciate the grace of God. That's why Newton himself said, it is my judgment they are the happiest who have the lowest thoughts of themselves and in whose eyes Jesus is most glorious and precious. And so, as David writes in verse 8, I urge you, taste and see that the Lord is good. Know your sin, but know his grace. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Personally experience it. Come to the realization of your own sin, your own brokenness, your own unworthiness, your own inability to save yourself. But his graciousness and kindness and goodness to die for your sins and to purchase your pardon. Taste and see that the Lord is good. If you, if you haven't already, I plead with you, do so today. Taste and see that the Lord is good. If you have, of course, then, then worship him. Worship him today and every day. And this day, come to the table. Come to the table that he prepares for us. 
that we indeed might taste and see that the Lord is good. For as we partake of this meal, we, in the words of Paul, proclaim the Lord's death, that sacrificial death wherein none of his bones were broken, but in which his blood was shed to wash away our sin. He became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he reminds